What's going on, world? Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn of Reviews and Dunn, back with another, with another interview. My guest today is Cecily, a DMV artist on her own label, Harmonious Grit. Cecily has the distinct honor of being the first woman that I'm going to interview solo-wise for my podcast. So give it up for her for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk to me. So everyone, please welcome to the line, Harmonious Grit recording artist, Cecily. How are you doing today, ma'am? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you for taking time out of your uh, busy schedule to talk to me. Like I tell all my interviewees, um, talking to recording artists and talking to actors, whoever it may be, whatever your art is, for me is the equivalent that all these guys got out of watching the Jordan documentary. So this is my Jordan <laughs> documentary, talking to you guys, no matter if you're independent or if you want a Grammy or if you're, you know, for hot 20 years ago and you kind of retired from the industry, talking to you all and hearing you guys is truth and your testimony is all the blessing I need right now. So thank you mm-hmm. and salute to you talk, talking to me. For sure. Happy to be here. So let's go ahead and knock this out. So who were your early musical inspirations growing up? Yeah, I, uh, let's see. There were so many, but I have to say when I was eight years old, um, that's when the Miseducation of Lauryn Hill came out. And that definitely had a big impact on me as a kid. Like I remember watching her win all her Grammys that year and just wanted to be like her. You know, and I just loved her album so much. I must have listened to it, I don't know how many times, you know, to the point where it was scratched, you know. (laughs) Um, So definitely Lauryn Hill was one of my earliest influences. And then as I got a little older, I started getting more into my parents' record collection, you know. So some of my favorite singers to listen to growing up were Shaka Khan. I love Shaka Khan. And uh, Minnie Riperton, Phyllis Hyman, were some people that I used to just listen to, like, on repeat. You know, I just I just loved how they approached the music. Um, and I also really love Faith Evans. I always love Faith Evans. She's one of my favorite singers from the 90s, for sure. Oh, and Anita Baker. I always loved Anita Baker. Um, she's just always been one of my favorite singers, just the way she improvises. So... Those would be like some of my main folks that I would that I think I've been influenced by musically, aesthetically, and vocally as well. Dope, dope. So I gotta ask, I'm gonna sidetrack really quick off the interview since you said Lauren Hill. What were your honest thoughts on Miss Hill's Unplugged album? Because that's the joint that came out when I was twenty. I just turned twenty one. I remember going to Circuit City to buy it, and I think in my 18 years since the album came out, I may have played it one time, mm-hmm. and I got what you were going for, but it was just, I think it was just too far left for my for my ears, and maybe it was something that you had to be there to, you know, to fully experience what she was trying to mm-hmm. go for, because, you know, some artists, you just have to... It's not that they're a bad artist, but you got to really see them live to really 
get what they're going for. And I think, you know, that's how John Legend is. That's kind of how the roots are. It's kind of how um, a lot of, like, musicians are as opposed to straight singers. So, I mean, what do you think about Lauryn Hill's Unplug album? So, yeah. You know, it's funny. I listened to it a lot when it came out. I mean, I was young. I don't even know. When did that album come out? Do you remember? That was 2002. I had just turned 21. I was about to say, I think I was 12. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was 12. I listened to that on repeat. I loved how raw it was, and I loved how honest it was, how it really um, it really just painted the picture of her life for me, like the, just the storytelling of it all. I really vibed with it. I can't say I've listened to it a lot since I've gotten older. It's not something I've, like, gone and revisited. But um, I definitely, definitely loved it when it came out. I think I I was just such a fan for Lauryn Hill. <laughs> Whatever she did, I would have loved, honestly. But I do appreciate how raw and honest it is. I love how she's not perfect vocally, actually, because – as a vocalist, we focus so much on, like, the perfection of it, you know, like having the perfect tone, the perfect run, you know, the perfect breathing technique and all that. And sometimes her voice cracks a little bit. Sometimes it feels like a little unsteady, a little uneven. And I actually love that, <laughs> to be fair. No, definitely. I interviewed um, Ryan Toby a few weeks, ba- a few weeks back. You know, he acted with her in Sister Act too. And he keeps kind of keeps hitting that what you say, what you're saying that he she's just so raw and she never really wanted that celebrity that she ended up getting from the Miseducation album. So that's kind of why she kind of fell into the whole reclusive thing. And you know it's mm-hmm. not for everybody. I mean, some some people just want to do that one album and lay low. So I mean, I would love to have a new Lauren Hill, you know, album, but. I mean, at this point, I don't think we'll ever get one, and that's okay because the success she had with Miss Education, you know, it takes some artists four or five albums to get, you know, that much success that early on, and Lauren did it with that first album. So shout out to Lauren Hill. We miss you. Mm-hmm. When did you realize that you wanted to pursue a career in music? It was kind of late for me. Like, I... When I was coming up, I really had, like, two things that I was really interested in and passionate about, and I kind of came into them both around the same time. So when I was um, 12 years old, maybe 13, I asked my mom if I could take voice lessons because I had seen a flyer at our local, um, you know, community arts center, and she said, you know, okay, let me hear you sing first, and then I'll let you know if I'll come pay for your voice lessons. Because I didn't really sing in front of people. Like, I was in the church choir, but I didn't solo. You know, it was kind of thing. I knew I had a, a nice voice, and I really enjoyed singing, but I was always too terrified to do it in front of other people. But anyway, so I sang for my mom in the kitchen, and then I took voice lessons starting at age 12. I started in a group class, and then I went on to, you know, take solo voice lessons. I took classical voice. Um, from the age of 12 to, like, the age of, like, 21, 22. Um, But right around the same time I started taking voice, I also took this class in eighth grade um, that was all about 
economic development and, um, you know, like working with, we learned about like the IMF and the World Bank and like development in Africa and, you know, how the different organizations tried to help alleviate poverty and what different like, you know, nonprofits did. And I found it so fascinating. And I, I really felt like that's what I wanted to go into. And so like from the age of 12 up until probably my second year in college, I was like really focused on, okay, I really wanted to work at the United Nations one day. That's what I wanted to do. Um, And I was set on that. You know, I went to school. I got my degree in political science. Um, You know, I became almost fluent in French because that's the second official language of United Nations. And I was just set on, I'm going to work at United Nations and I'm going to help people um, come out of poverty. And I specifically wanted to work in West Africa. So that's what I was focused on. But um, I uh, realized maybe my sophomore year in college that that whole world of, like, international development was not one I wanted to go into. Like, the more that I delved deeper into the history of development work, and all the different tactics and, you know, all the damage that the IMF and World Bank did in the 80s to countries and, um, you know, the, in, uh, the Americas and Latin America and everything made me realize that I didn't want to go into that world. Like, it was very, you know, centric, and I just, I just knew I wouldn't be happy doing that type of work. It just wasn't me. Um, and so I realized music had always been my passion and that it could also be a career. And I really realized that maybe like the summer, probably like the summer before my sophomore year in college, I was watching somebody perform at a music festival and I realized that I didn't want to be in the audience. I wanted to be on the stage. (laughs) And, um, from that moment, I just started taking it more seriously. Um, you know, I, I used to write a lot of poems, but I didn't really take them serious. And then from that point on, I just focused on writing songs. And, you know, I used to sing in a lot of groups like choirs and acapella groups and stuff. And from that point forward, I started trying to, you know, have more solos in that in those groups and perform more, you know, on my own around campus and at other schools nearby. And, um, yeah, so I think it was that that moment watching that person perform at that music festival. And it, just, it was like a slow build to that moment. But that was the moment when I realized, like, I actually, I think I want to do this. Like, I really want to do this. Yeah. That was a long answer, but. <laughs> I know, it's all well. Like I said, you know, I just love hearing artists um, chop it up. So, I mean, I give artists carte blanche to speak freely and, if it takes them an hour on one answer, then you know, <laughs> I don't mean, you know, I'm here to I'm I'm here to hear you guys tell your truth and tell your story. So this is all gold to me because I mean I think too often we as consumers don't really give artists their just due and fully appreciating, you know, why they do what they do and why they got to where 
they got to, especially now with today's mainstream industry to where anyone can pretty much make a song and become YouTube famous or Instagram famous, and it's repetitive music. It's not really saying anything, but artists like yourself, mm. you know, you're passionate about what you're doing. Like, you, know, you gave a very thorough and concrete and passionate answer. You know, it was like, I, oh, I want to make money, or, you know, I want to be on Instagram famous and have millions of followers. It's like, no, you're doing it for the love of the art for the love of the music, so I totally respect that. Yeah, thank you. Abby Bonet for the 2013 track, Heaven in Your Eyes. Yeah, you know, that was really interesting. I That was one of the first songs I ever recorded. Uh, I graduated from college in 2012, and I remember writing that song in my college dorm room my senior year. Um, you know, my, my cousin had put me in touch with this producer in Chicago, she knew, whose name uh Steve Miggity Maestro. And uh he does a lot of house like Chicago house music. But he has sent me these couple tracks that I liked and this was one of them, Heaven in Your Eyes, and it's um it's actually a, a remake. The music is a remake of a song called um Heaven in Your Arms which is a song by this group called RJ's Latest Arrival from the 80s. Yeah. And when I first heard the track, I didn't, I had never heard the original, so I didn't even know that. But he had titled the track, um, Heaven in Your Arms, and I just liked the way that sounded. And so I kind of started writing from there. And there was, you know, this breakdown section on the song where I felt like there should be a guest artist. And I had reached out to a couple people, reached out to this one dude who was also like a DC um, rapper and he said he was interested, but he never sent me back his verse. Like, you know, it'd been like a month and I hadn't heard anything. And so my brother was like, Oh, I just saw on Twitter. Um, Tavi Bonet said he's doing features and to email him. So I did, I sent him the track and his team said, Oh yeah, he likes this. He'll get, he'll get you something back. And literally like, it might have been a day later or, like, at most two days later, he sent me something back, and it's the first you hear on the track, and I loved it. And um, it's funny because I actually didn't meet him in person until maybe, like, two years after that. I think in 2015, maybe. Because um, I think at the time he might have been, like, living back and forth between D.C. and L.A. or something like that, but... He might still be doing that. I'm not positive, but um, it's been a couple of times since we've worked on that song that I've ran into him in the city, and it's always love. So, yeah, I really appreciate Tabby Bonet. And he he recently put out some new music last year that, I, that I'm enjoying as well. So, yeah, shout out to Tabby Bonet for, for working with an unknown artist just because he loves the music. No doubt. In 2018, you released the album, Songs of Love and Freedom. As a male listener, one song that really stuck out to me was your idea of beautiful. What was the inspiration behind that one? Yeah, I'm curious. Can I ask you like what what made that stand out to you? What like how how does it how did you vibe with it or connect with it? I'm so curious as the artist. <laughs> I mean for me it just um I took it as how we see beauty from a male standpoint and we judge with our eyes instantly and we very rarely 
look at what's inside. And I take it as, um, you know, for me, I met my wife of 12 years on Match.com back in 2007. Now, mind you, like, you know, I, I had seen a picture and everything, but, you know, we were mainly communicating via telephone and um, text message at the time. But I hadn't actually spent any time with her, you know, in the physical sense for like three weeks. So I took time to get to know her. And my wife was concerned with her weight, you know, like some women are, which is fine, you know, because we put a lot of pressure on you guys. But when I saw her first time, I'm like, you know, you made it seem like you were like massively overweight, like, that's not the case. Like, you're very, very beautiful. So my idea of beautiful was your personality. Mm-hmm. You being attractive is just a bonus, but your personality is A1. So my idea of beautiful is what's inside. Everything else is just a bonus. So that, that was my interpretation of the song, you know, what we, what we as human beings see as true beauty, and everyone sees beauty differently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It's funny, actually. I met my husband online, too. <laughs> uh, we met on a, a dating app called OkCupid. So that's interesting. Um, but, yeah, so the song was inspired by the experience I had dating, or not really even dating, but wanting to date, I would say. This guy that um, was a touring musician, and he lives in New York, and, you know, I would really only get to see him, like, if I was in New York or if he was performing in D.C., and so the song was really just about, when I look back, I, I realize, like, you know, how naive it is, how young I was, like, I didn't know how to communicate what I wanted, like, I really wanted us to have something deeper, and to have, like, a more real relationship, you know, beyond just, you know, seeing each other or hooking up whenever we were, you know, nearby each other physically. But I wanted to have something that was, like, more. And I felt like by showing up, by making myself available, by always looking beautiful, you know, that he would, by, you know, texting him, how you doing, you know, that he would get the hint. <laughs> that he would be like, oh, okay, she, you know, like that eventually it would build and not realizing like, no, girl, you got to ask for what you want and not be ashamed of that, you know? Um, so for me, that song came out of a place of just feeling like I was giving so much of myself, like in the pre-chorus, you know, I'd say like, I've shown you, all my flaws and half of my mistakes, I've bared every inch to you, you know, all because I want to be your beautiful, you know, like, basically, like, I want you to come and tell me that I'm enough. And that's really what the song is about, like, that's just that desire to be enough for someone. And I think in my young age, like, I was, like, 20 two, I think, or 23, when I first met this guy that I wrote the song, or the song was kind of inspired by. And in my young age, like, I just thought he was cool. Like, he was doing what I wanted to do, you know, being like a full-time yeah. touring musician. And so I just, 
and he was like real cute and he was super fly and he was really talented and I just felt like, man, this guy is like everything, you know? And I just wanted to be I wanted to be everything to him. Um, so that's really what the song is about. Just like the kind of like desperation you feel sometimes when you just want to be enough for someone and it feels like you're not. But looking back, like I know like that wasn't really his fault, you know. That was just me not being able to communicate. <laughs> no doubt. Oh yeah. yeah. Just to um Yeah, I can tell you that guys, you know, we go through the exact same thing and mm-hmm. I often tell folks that um the mistakes that you kinda make when you're younger and you want you have this overwhelming desire to be with somebody, you're trying everything, like you know or you don't know. Well, you know and feel that you're right for this person, but you're not. And it's not a shot at you or them, but I always took it as every chick that I didn't get, or excuse me, ladies, every woman who I never, you know, was able to end up in a relationship with, that was God's way of telling me, I'm preparing you for who I have saved for you down the road. And everything you're going through now, in your 20s, like five, six years from now, She's going to be there, and I tell people all the time, me being single, as long as I was single, it prepared me for my wife. And at that time, you know, the young lady that I was dealing with, it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't our time, and, you know, it's tough. You know, it hurts like hell when you're young, but it's something we all got to go through to prepare ourselves for the right person, mentally, emotionally. You know, it's just it's a learning experience, and it's one of those things that – People always tell you it's going to happen. Like, no, it's not. Trust me, it'll happen, listeners. You know, just be patient. I'm a firm believer that there is somebody for everybody in the world. You know, we're not meant to be alone. Sometimes you just have to be patient, and love will find you when you least expect it. So just to get out of that whole thing, uh, thank you for sharing your experience. You know, that was a dope story to hear. You know, usually artists, when I interview them, they really don't go into – you know, how they met their spouse or, you know, how it can, how their songs connect to their personal life. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no so, problem, for sure. I know, I mean, everything is real personal, so. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I asked a question about the song, and so I mean, the song, the song is dope. So if you guys haven't, you know, heard Cecily's Your Idea is Beautiful, Your Idea Beautiful from her album Songs of Love and Freedom, that's one song I highly urge you guys to preview first from her album, because this song is very inspiring and very, very positive. So I got to ask, how was the experience performing at the sixth annual Momopox Jazz Festival? Yeah, that was awesome. It was really wonderful. I, um, I got invited to Columbia, um, the country in South America, to perform at the Momopox Jazz Festival, and it was my first time performing internationally, which was really awesome. I had never been, you know, um, out of the country with my band. So it was really great to get that opportunity. It was a little nerve-wracking because <laughs> we didn't really know a lot about the festival itself. Like, we knew it had been around for maybe a decade or so, and they were working on growing it. It's in this really beautiful little town called Mompox, which is like, almost in the jungle, like it's on this big river. It gets really hot there, really humid. Um, but the architecture and everything kind of reminds you of 
um, New Orleans, um, which is why they decided to start doing this jazz festival there because everyone would come and say, oh, this town reminds me of New Orleans just because of the type of architecture they have, you know. And so they decided to do a jazz festival to promote the town and bring people there. And so it was just really cool to be there. But then when we got there, I realized, like, oh, like, this is a big-ass deal. (laughs) We went to the festival the night before we performed. And, um, you know, it's like the the stage is is close to the river. um, But between the stage and the river, there's thousands of people. You know, and like they're all very engaged. Everyone was dancing. Um, I did an interview for this, and it's and it's broadcast live on national television, almost like um, their version of like PBS or something. You know, like a like a free like um, state-run national uh, TV channel. And so I <laughs> I didn't know that beforehand. <laughs> When I got there, they told us, oh, and it's broadcast on television. I was like, oh, great. This is going to be great. (laughs) But um, it really was wonderful, though. Like, the night we performed, it was raining, and so I was a little worried that there wouldn't be a lot of people there. Um, But literally, there were still thousands of people there. They just all had umbrellas. And, you know, right when we went up, it kind of stopped raining a bit, which was nice. And... I don't speak any Spanish. You know, I was in Colombia. All I knew how to say was, like, please, thank you, and my name is Cecily, you know, and I had learned that, like, that week, how to say, like, my name is Cecily. <laughs> and so usually in my shows, even at, like, big festivals and stuff, I usually intro the songs, I talk between songs, but, you know, I didn't know how many people really knew English, so I just decided not to talk. So we just went from song to song, and I would just say thank you in between each song. And But it was amazing how people were able to connect with the music, even if, you know, they didn't understand what I was saying. Because, you know, I'm a writer. Like, I just went into depth about, you know, all the background and story behind the songs. And so the lyrics are really important to me. So that was actually my first time really seeing how music, even if you don't fully understand the lyrics, really connects with people and it was a really beautiful moment like I felt very free on stage I felt very open I was so happy to be there with these all these all these brothers of mine my musical brothers that I trust and we had an amazing time just I still think about that sometimes just seeing all thousands of people like swaying with me in the rain to my music it was awesome it was really awesome thanks for asking about that Oh, yeah, no doubt. And uh, it's one of those things to where just reading interviews and numerous artists that I've, that I've interviewed so far, they always say that um, you really, you really, when you go overseas, you really find out how music, like you were just saying, is universal, and they just cater to um, R&B artists or soul artists more, a bit more prevalently than they do in the U.S., be it jazz, be it R&B, be it hip-hop, they just catered mm-hmm. us more overseas. And, um, you know, they're a bit more accepting over there. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it can be a foreign language, but they don't know your song word for word. Yeah, I loved yeah. Your, I love your long-term video for Awakening. How do you feel that black love in the media has evolved over the last 20 years? 
That's a good question. I think I think the biggest change is that we're able to hear more versions of the story because of the internet, right? So um, there's this artist that I, this writer I love named uh, Chimamanda Adichie. She wrote one of my very favorite books called Americana. And she had this, t- this TED talk that I really like where she talks about the danger of a single story and that it's really important to, to hear lots of different versions of even a similar story because there's so many different layers of experience, right? And so I think, like, in the 90s in particular, it was like a heyday for, like, the 90s, early 2000s. It was like a heyday for black people on television, just in terms mm-hmm. of, like, when I look back at my childhood, like, all the different black television shows from Moesha, Sister, Sister, Living Single, like, you know, from kid shows to, you know, sitcoms, you know, it's just like all the different media we had that portrayed black people was amazing. And then slowly that started to disappear. And, you know, by the time I was in high school, like, there was honestly none of that. There was so little of that on television that remained. And and I think with the birth of the Internet and of YouTube and now we have so many other storytellers that are able to get their message out there who are going to fill that void um, with little resources. You know, like we have Issa Rae because of YouTube, you know. Um, and I think now things are starting to shift more. We have more television shows and, you know, in mainstream media that are showing different versions of black people and black love and black experiences. And that's really beautiful. Um, I think it's still majorly important to highlight the, the, uh, the storytellers who have less resources, you know, who are, um, but still finding a way because, that means that story means so much to them, you know, that they're making it happen um, even though, you know, they have to fight for it. Not that the people in the mainstream media don't have to fight for it because they do. They really do. But um, I think that's the beauty of the Internet is that it, it gives us that opportunity to see lots of different types of voices and to hear all those different stories. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy that. I think that, you know, black love is, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a saving grace, you know, in this crazy world. And the beautiful thing is that now we can, we can see the version of black love that feels most authentic to us um, without having to go to white gatekeepers to say, yes, you can tell this story, you know. So that's, that's the beauty of, of today is that we have so many more of those opportunities. Totally agree. And, you know, even though my, um, you know, my wife is Caucasian, but I still champion, um, you know, black love every chance I get, especially in the media, because it's like you take a movie like the photograph, right? And mm. the photograph is a universal story. It's just, you know, the leads happen to be of color. And anybody can relate to the photograph because it's just like the notebook. So it's a universal story, but it just happens to have, you know, 
two black leads. I mean, I don't watch yeah. Insecure. I haven't gotten around to watching Insecure yet, but you know, my fem- you know my lady coworkers they all tell me that it's a universal story. It just happens to have you know a black lead. It's like you know we all go through the same things when it comes to relationships. Sometimes just don't be afraid to go out there and explore a different type of media that's different, you know, than what you're used to because it's the same story. It's just a different ethnic background telling the story, and you can relate to it. Like, you know, we all go through heartbreak. We all go through sometimes, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend lying to us or cheating on us or doing something where you want to, you know, possibly cut them. But, I mean, it, <laughs> it happens. So mm-hmm. that's one of those things where um, I think with Black Love growing and how, how it's gotten to now, it's gotten a whole lot better, especially with males and their sons and how we portray that because you very rarely would see mm. affection between a black male father and a, you know, a black son on television. I mean, you might see a hug or you might see like a handshake or some dap, but you very rarely saw, you know, a black father kiss his son on the forehead or show him affection. And it led to this whole thing about toxic masculinity. Like, you know, that's not okay to do. And, you know, it is like, you know, it's, okay to show, you know, um, you know, your male son affection. That's another conversation, mm-hmm. though, but I mean, <laughs> get where I'm going. But I, think, but I think that what you're saying is really crucial because, like I was saying, like, there's a danger to a single story. Like, when you don't give black storytellers the resources to do what, to tell the stories, the opportunity to tell the stories that are authentic to, to them, then we end up having these, like, these gaps in what we're seeing on media because obviously black fathers are, you know, very, can be, are, can be very loving and, um, you know, affectionate with their sons. And, like, that's a reality that already existed whether we see it in mainstream media or not, you know. So it's it's interesting because television, of course, the media is, like, it's a reflection of what is, and it also helps us to inform us about what can be and what's okay. So it's like the more that we see these authentic representations of black love, not just romantic love, but with family members and everything, the the more that we're able to feel that what we are already doing is okay or see things in our own lives that we feel like could be better, could be more loving. So, yeah. I agree with you. I, I definitely think that it's um it's just, it's just important to be reflected in media. It's just so essential. Definitely. So let's take it back to the music. If you could do wet with any male artist, who would you pick? <laughs> so I don't know if this answer is cheating or not, because this person is no longer living, but it would definitely be Luther Vandross. Any male artists? Okay, okay, yeah. I felt like maybe I was, like, you know, cheating the question a bit. (laughs) But hands down, it would would be Luther Vandross. I mean, his voice just every time, every time he gets me. Mm -hmm. Chris Brown can do a duet with Aaliyah, and then he can do a duet with Luther Vandross. (laughs) Right, that's true. Yeah, so, yeah, Luther was a bad boy. He, um... I always tell folks, one of my biggest regrets in life was he was doing a show here in D.C. At, when it was the 
MCI Center. That's, that's how long it was. Back in mm-hmm. 02, it was Luther, I think Yolanda Adams and Gerald LeVert. And my mom had bought tickets. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of her friends was, was, you know, was giving her the runaround about going. So she was like, boy, are you going to the show? And I'm like, no, I'm not. And she was like, yes, you are. <laughs> this ticket ain't going away, so you going to the show. So I was like, ah, I don't want, you know. I don't want to go. You know, I'm 21, and I mean, I like Luther, but it's like I really wasn't keen on going to a what I call an old head show. So mm-hmm. a year later, you know, he had that heart. You know, he had that stroke, and then he was gone in '05. And to this day, that's like that's one of my biggest regrets is not seeing Luther, not seeing Gerald before they passed. So now, you know, pre-COVID, mm-hmm. anytime an artist, you know, that was a little bit before my time comes to town. I try to go see them because you never know. You don't want to regret, you know, not seeing somebody live who was one of the um, one of the greats. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think for me, like, there's certain artists that I definitely remember exactly. People always say like, you remember where you were and what you're doing when you found out they were gone. And Luther Vandross was one of those people. Luther Vandross, James Brown, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. Like, you just remember for me. I remember what I was and how it felt, you know? Yeah. Yeah, my Luther, um, Luther, I was actually in the Air Force, and I was stationed in the U.K., and I would mm-hmm. always do the things I would do when I got up in the morning because, you know, the time difference, this is like 05, so cell phones didn't have news and all that, but I would always log on my computer first thing in the morning, and I'd always check tvnews.com. And sure enough, like, you know, I found out that, Luther was gone, so I was actually DJing that night at the on base club. And I remember I, I played um, "A House Is Not a Home," the, the ten minute live version, mm. and they, they, they just lost it in the club. I and mean, everybody was slow dancing and tearing up, and that was a great thing to see. Yeah, well, speaking a lot of performance. Mm. What's your favorite venue to perform in in the DMV? So let's see. I've performed at multiple times at the Kennedy Center on different stages. I performed at the Howard Theater, the Hamilton, Bethesda Blues and Jazz. I have to, like, run through them in my mind so I can know for sure. <laughs> I'm not forgetting anything. I performed at Songbird, New Street Music Hall. Like, there's very few stages in D.C. area that, like, I haven't been on yet that I really want to be on. But out of the ones I have performed on, I think my favorite is probably the Hamilton because it's, and I've performed there maybe like four or five times at this point, um, but I think that it definitely is a listening room, which I love. Um, I did do one show there where people actually were like up and dancing, but that I've never seen before. It's almost always a listening room, and I love the way it's the sound is in there like it's just a great sound stage like they did a great job with all the like acoustic treatments in that space and um as long as I can get I mean I'm thinking not only as a performer but as like attending a concert as long as I can get there early enough to not sit behind one of those columns they have those poles then it's great (laughs) um but being on that stage is awesome too yeah and the staff is really nice the food is good green room's cool so yeah definitely definitely a great place to perform. Have you done a show at the Birchmere yet in Alexandria? No, I have not. Not yet. Oh, no, no, I haven't. No, no, no. There was a time I was 
Um, no, I'll just say no. <laughs> but no, I have been there. Good. I really like that place. It's very yeah. similar to the Hamilton to me, too. Yeah, the Birchmere's, um I always tell folks who, you know, never go or haven't been, I'm like, you want to find out who can really sing? You go to the Birchmere because it's so intimate. And when somebody's mm. off, you'll know that they're, um, you know, no judgment, but you'll know that they're off because you really got to bring your A game when you go to the um, Birchmere, you know. And even though it is a bit smaller, like, that's probably my favorite venue in the DMV at all of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Kennedy Center School, you know, Verizon is okay, but like the, the Howard, Songbird, like you mentioned, the Thessa Blues and Jazz, and the Birchmere, I, I, I just prefer more intimate venues as opposed to like the big arena style, especially for yeah. R&B shows because it's much more intimate and much more, the artists seem to give you more of a, um, you know, a better show, if you will. Because I've seen, um, mm-hmm. I saw Music Soul Child at the Birchmere, and then I saw him at Constitution Hall, maybe like five or six years apart, totally different show, because, you know, one was more intimate, and then he's in a bigger, you know, venue, so it doesn't, just doesn't feel the same. Yeah, I definitely am with you on that. I definitely prefer the more intimate venues myself. All the talk recently has been about versus battles. Two arts you've opened for are Kenny Lattimore and Johnny Gill. Who are you picking in a versus battle between Mr. Gill and Mr. Lattimore if they were to battle it out? <laughs> uh, okay, so I love Kenny Lattimore. His voice, if you've never seen him perform live, you must. Oh, yeah. He can sing anything. His voice is oh, yeah. Amazing. One of the best voices in, I would say, in R&B, but he can do so much more than that. So I'm not even going to put him in that box. Just one of the best voices. Yeah. Um, In a versus battle, however, that has to be Johnny Gill because, I mean, he can pull all that new edition stuff. I mean, you you can't lose with new edition behind you. (laughs) (laughs) You really can't. I mean, he has that new edition stuff. He has like the duets he did. They both have some great duets, I must say. I think Kenny Bell Adamore might win on the duets tip, but I think Johnny Gill gets it overall. Yeah. <laughs> and that's dope to hear. You know, shout out to you for giving Kenny Lattimore his um his flowers. I'm hoping now because of the whole Jordan doc, people actually go out and check out Kenny's discography. But I mean, I knew mm. that Kenny could sing just from being a you know being a casual and you know buying his music but when i saw kenny live and he went that he went to that opera and just his register now he was able to like yo kenny Lattimore is just light years ahead of a bunch of singers that are popular right now i'm not gonna say no names straight, <laughs> singing, straight singing they don't come close to what kenny Lattimore can do vocally oh, yeah. and then just how kenny you know carries himself he's not arrogant he's not like confident he just has an amazing so down to earth yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I must say, like, one time I was um, at a – this is before I had met him personally, but I was at a, a wedding, my god sister's wedding, and they know – my godparents know Kenny Lattimore because, you know, D.C. connection. He's in D.C. But I had never met him before. Um, so he 
was to perform at my god sister's wedding in Miami. And, you know, he had, I think, a background track, I think, and they tried to play it, and it didn't play. And they tried one more time, it didn't play. And he was just like, he just waved his hand, like, forget it, you know. And he sang the whole song, a cappella, and it was flawless, and people were crying. It was like, oh, it was perfect. It was just perfect. <laughs> it was just amazing. And that was, like, a lesson for me as a performer, too. Like, if, you know, if you have the technical difficulties, like, at the end of the day, you're there to sing. Um, let the technical stuff be the technical stuff. And it's going to mess up when it's going to mess up, you know. But yeah. do what you do and be in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely love Kenny Lattimore. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned that you like to read. So who are your three favorite authors, either fiction or nonfiction? Oh, Lord. Let's see. Fiction or nonfiction, favorite authors. Okay, so Chimamanda Adichie is one. I love her. Um, specifically, Americana is one of my favorites. And then Half a Yellow Sun is also a gorgeous, gorgeous novel. Um, other favorite writers. It's interesting because over the last few years, I haven't read a lot of fiction, and most of my favorite writers are are fiction writers because I just love how they use language. Um, and so I have to say Toni Morrison because Toni Morrison has taught me new ways to use language as a writer, not just as a songwriter, but just a writer in general. Um, and I, I just love, I love her work. My favorite book of hers is still The Bluest Eye, which I read for the first time at age 16, and it was really life-changing for me. So definitely Toni Morrison. And then I think my other favorite writer, just of the moment, is um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a Zen Buddhist uh monk and teacher and like I said I haven't been reading a lot of fiction over the last few years and that's because I've been reading a lot of his books uh he has an amazing how-to series um how to love how to relax how to eat how to walk how to sit how to fight <laughs> um I've made my way through two and a half of those so far and he also has a book called what is that book called something about peace. I don't remember the full title right now, but uh, I love his how-to series because it's just little vignettes. Like, you can just open to a page and read that page and close it and just, like, contemplate that for the rest of the day, you know? And I love how he takes things that can be overly complicated and makes them simple and digestible, but still just as um, poignant, you know? So, uh, Tish Nakhon is definitely one of my favorite writers as well. I also love the way he uses language, even though um, English isn't his first language. He has a way of using it that's really, really powerful. I'm a big fan of musical biopics. As a singer, would you rather see the story of Anita Baker or Phyllis Simon told on the big screen? Okay, here, I'm torn, and I'll tell you why. 
I will answer the question, but <laughs> I'm torn because I I have a slight issue with certain biopics or documentaries that I feel like exploit people's suffering um, for entertainment purposes. Yeah. And I know we all love, like, the sad story for some reason. You know, like, a few years ago, like, I watched the Nina Simone documentary on Netflix and also the um, Amy Winehouse documentary, like, in, within a couple days of each other. And they were devastating, you know. Um, and I, I just had this moment when I – and I also felt like they were a little invasive, um, especially – I mean, obviously she's been dead for, you know, a couple decades now or more than that now. God, time flies. <laughs> but, I mean, Nina Simone, they were using her, her diary entries, and that to me felt like a little invasive. And I know, like, her daughter – you know, allowed them or whoever owns her state, like, allowed them to use these resources to tell her story. And I just felt torn because I felt like, you know, it's it's amazing to hear her story through her own words. But didn't she already give us enough of herself? Like, she gave us the music. You know, she gave us the interviews. Like, why are we still asking for more? And, you know, I, I kind of felt the same watching the Amy Winehouse documentary. And so to answer your question... I I would love to see the Phil Hyman documentary. I would love to see both, of course, but I would pick Phil Hyman because I feel like her story hasn't been told enough, um, mm-hmm. and she did die, you know, before her time and in a really tragic way. And the end in, in the industry was very cruel to her in a lot of ways. Speak and I I want her story to be told, but then I'm also a little. Um, I felt like we have to tread lightly. We have to be very sensitive in, in the ways that we, that we speak about her pain and don't, don't just use it as entertainment. Like, it has to be deeper than that. You know what I mean? Um, these tragic stories, I just, I feel like we, I don't know. I, I feel like we just use celebrities for entertainment purposes and we don't see them as full human beings. So I feel like I'm only interested in, in the Phyllis Hyman docu-pick if it's going to be or biopic if it's going to if it's going to show her full humanity and I, that I would love to see yeah I know a few years ago they say Jill Scott had the rights to her story and she wanted to do it for the exact reason that you just mentioned because Phyllis was another one that we don't speak her name enough and I know that Phyllis had the um you know she was suffering from depression and all that and you're like you're right you'd have to really tread lightly. I think Ava, Duver, Ava DuVernay could handle it as a director, and I think with Jill playing her and Jill kind of being from Philly and, you know, her beautiful spirit, I think Jill would do it justice, and she would, you know, have it on yeah. the things that she said about because, you know, we don't speak on Phyllis enough, you know, the us, you know, I mean, us like in that 39 and under crowd, like, you know, our parents and, you know, folks that were around in her prime definitely get those her flowers but as far as um us you know our generations 80s and the 90s babies we rarely hear phyllis name mentioned unless you know your parents were hip to phyllis or you were um just an old soul like myself so yeah phyllis man we mm-hmm. definitely need to get the best of phyllis time she had a lot more music 
inside of her. Yeah, man, I actually recently, oh, sorry, I just want to say one thing. I actually recently, um, uh, and I say recently, it was like four years ago, but recent in my knowledge of timing, came across the the work she did with Pharaoh Sanders. Mind-blowing. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely do. Her 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 work with, uh, she has two songs that she did on this uh, Pharaoh Sanders album that I just, I love. I performed one of them a couple of times. I just, I just love these tunes, so yeah, just want to say that. Yeah, so see, you have another co-sign for someone else in the industry. Check out Bill Simon's work. A very, very highly unsung talent who we never got to even see what she could truly do. And Phyllis was out here, I mean, playing the game when she was, you know, with us on this earth, but she had a ton of music left in her. So rest in peace, Phyllis Simon. Mm. So before we close out, where can fans find you on social media? And is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, you can find me on the socials. I'm uh, normally on Instagram, probably too much. <laughs> I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Um, but you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram. My handle is at Cecily Alexa, and that's spelled C-E-C-I-L-Y. A-L-E-X-A. And um, if you would like to check out the Awakening, the visual EP that we talked about earlier briefly, the long-form video, you can go to my YouTube page, which is Cecily Music. That's youtube.com slash Cecily Music. And check that out. And, uh, yeah, I, I encourage you all to listen to my music and just enjoy it, make it a part of your lives. That's why I put it out in the world. So you can listen to Your Idea of Beautiful, which is Derek recommended. Appreciate that. One of my personal favorites of the moment is um, a song called Clumsy, which is from my latest project, Awakening Part 1. So, yeah, just go listen to the music and enjoy it and find me on the socials. Let's, let's connect. Appreciate the love. All right, folks. That was Cecily from Grit Harmonious Grit Recordings. I want to thank a local talent for coming to the podcast. And like I always say, folks, please support your local talent. It's okay to check out people that aren't from our city and our area, but you got to support local talent because this is DMV. And we have tons of talent in the area. Cecily is one of those talents. And I want to leave you with this quote. Inspiration comes from within yourself. One has to be positive. When you're positive, Good things happen. Deep Roy. Until the next time, stay positive, stay inspired, and be blessed. Done out.